0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives one lived experience at a time and to make our history accessible and universally known.
2: Welcome to Triple Vision. I'm David Best and with me is Hannah Levitt. So Hannah, what's our topic for today's episode? Hi, David. Today on Triple Vision, In
1: regard to Valentine's Day, we're having an episode called The Politics of Puppy Love. It's a discussion with various people about the history of guide dogs in Canada and the current issues that face guide dog users in Canada.
2: Yeah, Hannah, as we'll hear throughout the podcast, dogs have been used for centuries to actually guide blind people, but it is relatively new in Canada. For example, we, we can go back to the 19th century to find the first reference to guide dogs for blind persons. There's a reference in the uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol story, where he, he mentions the guide dog. Listen to this clip where Dickens describes the reaction of the guide dog when they encounter Scrooge coming along the street.
3: Even the blind men's dogs appeared to know him and when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, No eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master.
1: That was really interesting, David. So are you saying that guide dog schools have been around since the time of Dickens?
2: Yeah, that's right, Hannah. Guide dog training didn't actually start until about the time of World War I, when soldiers were returning from the battlefields with blindness due to poison gas. A German doctor established the first guide dog training for blind persons, and it was known to be the first one in the world. An American woman, Dorothy Eustace, who was working in Switzerland at the time, training dogs for the military and security services, took note of the school and went there to see what was happening. Dorothy Eustace took note of the school and went to see how the training was being done. She was so impressed that she wrote an article in the Saturday Evening Post, and it was brought to the attention of Morris Frank, who happens to be blind, and he was so intrigued with the idea of a guide dog that he wrote to Dorothy, and she invited him to Switzerland, where he trained with his first guide dog. In 1929, he returned to the United States with his first dog, Buddy, and he established the Seeing Eye Dog Training School. But, you know, it wasn't until several years later before the idea of guide dog training caught on in Canada.
1: That's right, David. Canada had its first guide dog school in Quebec. Its name is Mira. It was established in 1981. After that, Canadian Guide Dogs for the Blind started its uh, operations in 1984, Canine Vision Canada in 1985, BC and Alberta Guide Dogs in 1996, and very recently, the CNIB's training program started in 2017. But to tell us more about the Canadian Guide Dog story, we have with us today Stephen Doucette from Canadian Guide Dogs for the Blind. So, Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about your role with Guide Dogs?
4: Yeah, so I started with Canadian Guide Dogs for the Blind uh, way back in 1999, and uh, I was actually uh, hired in a fundraising position, and I really knew nothing about Guide Dogs, but was bringing some experience and in fundraising into the organization, and now uh what, 23 years later, nearly, uh, I am in the role of client services administrator. So so really, over those 23 years, I became more uh, moving into the operational side and learned, of course, more about guide dogs, the industry and, and, and our organization specifically, what we do, how we do it, why we do it. And really, it's gone from uh, being hired uh, for a job in 1999 to very much a vocation that uh, is very near and dear to my heart at this point in time. And it was really uh, in World War I when the modern guide dog story began, um, when they realized that uh, servicemen, um, of course, service women too now, uh, but servicemen back in World War I were returning from the war with, uh, with visual impairments. So, so guide dogs became uh, more of a modern story at that time. The first uh, guide dog organization in North America uh, it's actually not guide dogs. It's seeing eye dogs, which is a common term people know. So in 1929, seeing eye dogs uh, was founded in Tennessee. Later, a couple of years later, moved to New Jersey where they still are located. But that, you've heard the term seeing eye dogs. It's a trademark term and that's where it comes from. And then there were some other organizations that started in the U.S. There was Guide Dogs in the U.K., which is the world's largest guide dog training organization, still all came about. And it wasn't until the 1980s when we actually had organizations popping up in Canada to train guide dogs. So uh, there were basically uh, three organizations that that started around the same time. The first was in 1981, uh, the Mira Foundation in Quebec, Uh, was founded by Eric St-Pierre. He proudly presented two blind individuals with the first two guide dogs that were trained in Quebec in 81. And then uh, a few years later, Canadian Guide Dogs for the Blind was established in 1984. So I'll touch more on that in a moment. Uh, And the following year, in 1985, the Lions Foundation of Canada Dog Guides opened its doors in Oakville, Ontario, Um, under the uh, banner name of Canine Vision Canada. We were founded in 1984, and uh, the founders were Jane Thornton and William Thornton. Uh, They were married at the time. Uh, Jane currently remains as the chief operating officer of Canadian Guide Dogs for the Blind. So in the UK, Jane was a consultant for the Royal Commonwealth Society for the Blind and worked for the Royal National Institute for the Blind. And she was also head of the Mobility Department of the West of England School for Children with Little or No Sight, as it was called, and also running her own business on the side in in addition to that. Bill Thornton uh, first trained dogs as an officer with the National Police Force uh, in the Republic of Rhodesia. And uh, it was an encounter that Bill had with uh, Guide Dogs for the Blind on a trip to the U.K., in the late 1970s, that inspired him to uh, to move into that field, um, taking on an apprenticeship and then training as a guide dog mobility instructor in the UK. So, so they had plenty of experience and background to start with, and then they emigrated to Canada with the dream and intention to start a guide dog school, which at that time was still lacking. Um, and they founded Canadian Guide Dogs for the Blind. So, our official establishment date was January twelfth, nineteen eighty four. And, uh, we basically started with very humble beginnings. Uh, it was a, a rented townhouse. The garage was converted to a kennel and it really started with, with one dog and went from there and, you know, taking donations from, from breeders and, and, and then establishing our own breeding program eventually. And our first graduate was a gentleman by the name of John and a guide dog named Sasha who graduated in July of 1984. So uh, we're well established now at this point. But, but when you get back into the, uh, the history of guide dogs in general, guide dogs in Canada are still relatively new. We've been around for 38 years. The um, the foundation for a few more than that. So in comparison to uh, 1929 in the U.S., it's still a, a fairly new thing here in Canada.
2: So are you dependent on charity then uh, for
4: donations to provide the dogs? Yes, we are. Canadian Guide Dogs for the Blind is a registered charity with the CRA, and we operate solely through donations. So there is no government funding for our organization. Uh, we do have some, of course, corporate donors and such, but we're we're blessed in one sense that as a charity being around, you know, since 1984, we do have a, a good number of, of loyal supporters. But we operate a lot by individuals um here in Canada who give a little bit at a time. So so we're blessed with a lot of donors but not a lot necessarily of huge donors. And and that's sort of a blessing and a curse because as a charity if you're dependent on let's say a corporation who's going to give you 2 million of your, you know, operating budget per year and they aren't available or have to back out or have financial issues, you're in huge trouble. So with us, we, we have some corporate donors, but a lot of our donors are really just individuals in the community that give, you know, 20, 50, a hundred dollars once or twice a year, but we really depend on that kind of support. So if
2: someone is thinking about getting a guide dog, what would you say the primary benefits are for them?
4: Really, it's about independence. That's that's the word that we, we promote the most and that's what we hear the most. Independence, uh, freedom is another one. It's really about um, living a life that you don't have to depend on other people. And it, it comes to, down to very simple things. You know, we've I've heard clients say to me, you know what, It's it's amazing the freedom I feel to not have to wait for somebody else to come and pick me up, to take me somewhere. There's a client who calls his dog, his wheels on four feet. He basically grabs the harness and and calls the dog and the dog is very happy to perform the job and they head out wherever they have to go. Now what helps the gentleman is, is very, uh, very, uh, adaptable and, and and good at getting around himself. He has great orientation, mobility skills. He knows the bus routes in his area, but uh, basically he, he calls upon his dog and goes where he needs to. And, you know, I've had other clients say, you know, it, 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 it takes a lot out of your self-esteem to have to sit to wait for a few hours for somebody to come and pick you up just because you need bread and milk at the corner store. So it comes down to, Whether somebody needs that independence and a guide dog is great, really, if you have a couple of independent routes um, using a cane and you have some orientation and mobility skills, but you want to go a little bit further. You want to expand your world. You want to introduce new routes. You want to go a little bit further afield from home and and really have that 100% independence. So so again, independence is the key word. That's what it comes down to is, is just being able to live your life freely and independently and not have to rely on other people so much.
1: Next on our podcast, we have Irene Lambert, who is a longtime advocate and activist in the blind community. She's a West Islander who is the 2021 recipient of the Chris Stark Distinguished Advocate Award that's given through Barrier Free Canada. So, congratulations on that recognition, Irene.
3: Well, thank you very much.
2: Well, thank you for joining us, Irene. I understand that you self-trained your dog. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about when you arrived in Montreal, 1969, with your self-trained dog?
3: We had trained our own dogs in Philadelphia while we were students at the University of Pennsylvania. My husband was 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 a born and bred Philadelphia, and we had returned to Philly to finish our degrees at Penn. Uh, Bob had his own trained dog, a uh, shepherd named Trudy, who we had to put down eventually. And um, he decided to train his own dog again. And then when my sight was getting bad enough, he said, well, you have two, two uh, possibilities. You can go to a school, you can get a white cane, or we can train you a dog. So I decided I think I would go for the latter choice, which we did. And um, when we finished our degrees in 69, we moved to Montreal because Bob had received a, a faculty appointment at Loyola College. I was returning to Montreal, essentially, because that's where I was born and brought up. We brought our three sons with us and our two guide dogs, Golden Retriever guide dogs. And of course, at that point, all the colleges were hiring new PhDs. So we sort of fell into this social group of new faculty members and we were all gung-ho to join the French culture. However, we were often refused access to restaurants and to restaurants, not to restaurants and theaters, and especially to place des arts. And then when we looked into the proof of laws that allowed people with guide dogs access, which we had carried all around the States with us, had never been denied anything in the States except an occasional taxi driver. And here we were facing all these rejections in Montreal. We went to Place des Arts, we looked up laws, and then the only thing in the whole of the province of Quebec in those days, this was in 1970-ish, was a little tiny bylaw in the city of Montreal that would allow fish in aquariums or seeing-eye dogs with small letters. So we tried to appeal to Place des Arts. We're turned down with them, uh, almost decided. Well, we did decide to hire a lawyer. We got Claude Armand-Shepard, who was the, the great civil rights lawyer in Montreal at that time, he said, I don't see why you couldn't win a case against Plastizard on the balance of convenience. If you tried to discuss it, like with the president of the board at uh, Plastizard, um, he said, Oh yeah, but what if the dog barks or, uh, you know, maybe your dog will smell or maybe people will be afraid of it or maybe people have allergies. Well, they had a whole retinue of objections.
2: So what do you recommend when someone wants to get a dog? Is it a good idea to self-train?
3: We never advocated self-training. It was convenient for us. We had the facilities to do it and the guts to do it. We were willing to buy our own dog and gamble on it working. We never advocated for it. However, there was one big school in the United States that frowned on it publicly denounced it, that it couldn't be done and it shouldn't be done. And so most guide dog users would just accept that as, well, you know, you should not um, train your own dog. It's impossible to do. It wasn't impossible to do. We actually had two different directors of training from two different schools endorse our training, our our particular dogs.
1: So can we go back to... uh to the story of the human rights lawyer that you hired and how you went about actually getting uh, legislation in place
3: for guide dogs. Well, we never followed through on that aspect of it because about the same time we learned about a connection or we made my husband, my husband was extremely um, explicit and very articulate about what our rights should be and the role of the government in playing a role in seeing that visually impaired people needed to be considered and included in rehabilitation, which would include guide dog training. And one of his students connected us with uh, a department in the Department of, um, well, in French it's, Sante, sociaux et Sante, that is the Department of Planification, they picked up on it immediately. Because you have to remember in the early 70s, um, Quebec was going much more party Quebecois, much more for independence. But they were very, very socially conscious and very good about um, trying to improve education and health and all kinds of things. So they picked up on my husband's briefs and set up a commission. And, of course, we were appointed to the commission, which turned out to be for all disabilities. It wasn't just for visually impaired people. It was for all disabilities. And that law was was written um, about 1975 um, by the Liberal Party. The Liberals lost the election, or election was called, so our bill was, was dropped. Um, the Parti Québécois won that election in 1976. And by 1978, they had rewritten the law, made it much stronger than the old one was, and it was passed and enacted. And we say in French, "en vigueur means ready to, to be acted on in uh, 1978. And there was one little article in that whole law, it was called an act to ensure the handicap in the exercise of their rights. And that was the first law ever passed even in Canada, never mind Quebec, to guarantee disabled people their rights and the right to practice them. But the article in there that dealt with public access for guide dogs really took us by surprise because it said any device Used by a disabled person to ameliorate their handicap, oh, should not be discriminated against. But of course, there were no penalties attached to it. But it did give us public access with a guide dog.
2: So, what is the current status of the legislation, and what changes, if any, do you think need to be made for future use of dogs?
3: Oh, there, there need to be just like the Canada Access, you know, Act was written and uh, people objected that it wasn't strong enough or didn't enforce it with enough penalties, Um, they don't pass laws that are ever strong enough. So in the meantime, this law since 1978 has been amended a few times. There is another group that has started up. They are Quebec Accessible and uh, they are working on trying to change some of the law. So did, uh, passing that law, did that make your life a lot easier, or did it take a quite a bit of time? Eventually, it, it did. You know, it, any law takes time to reach um, the people in, in the public domain who are there to enforce it. So it took the police quite a long t- time to, uh, you know, all some policemen would pick up on it, others didn't. Uh, A lot of taxi drivers uh, never heard of it. Uh, The taxi companies began to enforce it, um, but it took another uh, whole round of taxi legislation to get it into law that taxi drivers were required to take guide dogs. So there took a lot of movement in taxi legislation to sort of, supplement the, the uh, Act for uh, Accessibility. And I feel like even with the Canada Act, that you can't expect big institutions to suddenly know about it, and know what to do about it, when they've never paid any attention to what the needs were in the first place. So you <laughs> almost have to have carrots as well as sticks.
2: With us today on this podcast, we have Alan Conway Alan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your credentials with regard to guide dogs?
0: Well, I have been blind since birth. I uh, got my first guide dog in 1979 while I was a translation student at the University of Montreal. I've now I've had f- four other dogs since, including the dog that I have now. Uh, so I have 43 years of experience working with. Uh, guide dogs uh, in all kinds of situations i was employed as first as a translator and then later on as an interpreter for the government of canada so my dogs helped travel a lot and helped me get to many different locations where i had to work with where the hours were very unpredictable and uh some of the locations would have been a bit difficult by bus, but they were a little easier with a dog and that sort of thing. So my dogs helped me in my work in basically all 10 provinces and in the uh, uh, Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories during the 27 years I worked as an interpreter.
2: And you've been associated with the Guide Dogs Users of Canada?
0: yes i am a founding member of guide dog users of canada we founded the organization in 1999 and i have held almost all of the positions on the board of directors since my involvement i'm not on the board now Uh, i think it's time for some younger people to uh, do a little more of this
1: so alan as a user of guide dogs for many years And um, as a member of an advocacy group for guide dogs, I know you've seen a lot of uh, changes over the years, but problems continue to come up with guide dogs in public spaces. And I know you were part of a a group, or Guide Dog Users of Canada was uh, an initiative called Hands Off Our Harnesses a few years ago. And that same same issue has recently come up with standards at the federal government level. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what that was all about and how it applies to guide dogs?
0: Well, uh, all this kind of started in uh, 2014. And the context of this involves people who were, you know, members of our armed forces who came back from Afghanistan with PTSD. And people realized that dogs did an awful lot of good work with these people and were really quite a help. Uh, the problem was that the National the Dep- Department of National Defense, sorry, um, uh, had um, problems with people who were bringing dogs on to military bases and the dogs weren't trained properly. So they contacted Veterans Affairs and asked uh, them to see what could be done about developing a, uh, a standard. That was all well and good, you know, as it applied to um, uh, Other types of dogs where, you know, the training hasn't been around as long and uh, that sort of thing. But it got to be a problem when the organization, I believe it was the CSA, or no, it was the uh, General Standards Board, I think it was called. Uh, Basically, what happened was that at some point, someone decided guide dogs ought to be included in this. Now, the problem for us as guide dog handlers is or was and still is our schools in the majority belong to an organization called the International Guide Dog Federation. It represents guide dog schools in about 90 countries, and that organization has its standards for the training and care of guide dogs that already have a very well established standard in terms of the training of students, the care of the dogs, the training the dogs receive. All of that is covered in, in standards that they uh follow so uh we were seeing uh for example inform- stuff that came out about um standards that were being developed where uh a doctor for example would do the assessment as to whether uh someone needed a guide dog or not well a doctor can provide information about a person's health but a guide dog school is much better equipped to uh, determine whether the person can actually work with a dog. So uh, this kind of thing um, really started causing problems. And uh, GDUC was at first involved in the discussion about standards. We thought that by being at the table, we might be able to do something useful. The only problem was the, um, the whole process is very secretive, and it basically meant that we had to sign statements basically to the effect that we would not reveal what was going on. So we couldn't tell our members anything. And, of course, this basically meant that until the final draft came out, there were seven drafts before the eighth one finally came out. And uh, when it did, of course, then that was uh, public and um, that is the basis for i would say uh, hands off our hounds or hands off our harnesses however you want to call it because basically at that point when the information became public uh, guide dog handlers and other guide dog schools mobilized uh, a a lot of energy and uh, basically um, uh, decided uh, uh, to fight this and of course by that time The GDUC had withdrawn its participation because we were all too well aware of what was coming and we certainly didn't want to uh, uh, be placed in a position of having to agree to something that we knew was not in Guide Dog Handler's best interests.
1: That was sort of the uh, story with the hands off our harnesses. What about the current application?
0: Well... I think all we really know at this point is that there is a a group that uh, basically it it develops uh, standards as I understand it for the care and keeping of uh, laboratory animals. And they've been asked by the Canadian foundation for uh, assisted support services. And these people are, interested in broadening access for for people uh, with other types of assistance dogs. Of course, the, the problem is that uh, we know that the previous standard uh, caused a, a lot of trouble. It had elements in it that the, the Canadian Human Rights Commission came out uh, against, because, I mean, the the thing involved being able to visit people at home and check into all the vet records and find out whether your dog was actually getting enough exercise and whether he was being fed properly. And so it was getting into an awful lot of other, other details. And it really, um, we don't want to go through that again.
1: So you haven't been able to have any dialogue at all with this group to kind of identify some of the ongoing problems that happen with every application.
0: Is that right? Certainly. We understand that there may be elements of this, uh, the assistance dog industry, if you want to call it that, that do need some cleaning up. But guide dogs should not be directly concerned with this. The fact is our schools in the vast majority of cases belong to an association that has very well-established standards. And the school that my dog, all my dogs have come from, actually, is the Seeing Eye. That's the very first guide dog school in North America. And that school set the standard that basically others ended up following. So obviously, I think that a dog coming from uh, the school uh, where I was trained, uh, certainly as long as I follow the training that I've received, Uh, doesn't need anybody else uh, determining whether it's an appropriate guide dog.
1: So David, on today's podcast, we learned a lot about the history of guide dogs and, and about the ongoing challenges of having a dog guide in society today. And we'll keep looking into the different situations that come up with guide dogs from time to time. Next time, we'll be talking about eugenics in a podcast that we're calling Putting the You Back into Eugenics. So we hope you stay tuned and join us for that.
2: Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And finally, I would like to thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, you can reach us by email at triplevision21 at gmail.com, or reach us on Twitter at triplevision 21 Hi, I'm Red Sale, the host of My Life in Books on AMI-audio. Join me on Mondays at 1pm Eastern Time as I chat with a selection of renowned authors to read between the lines of their latest work, riffle through their back pages, and discover which books inspired them to pick up the pen. That's My Life in Books with me, Red Sale, Mondays at 1pm Eastern Time on AMI-audio
3: or download the podcast from your favourite provider.